1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of God for the people of God. It's good to have everybody here today, each and every one of you. We have some friends from Lubbock that are with us today from the church over there, and uh, David Walt is the associate pastor, and they're friends of ours, and uh, and the lead pastor, Mark and Ginger, they're friends of ours and have been for a long time, so uh, David and Katie, good to have you here and with your friends, and from representing Northridge Church, good to have them here. David, do you want to share a word with the people today, bring us a greeting? Glad to have you. We're going through the New City Catechism, and our question today was, what was the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? We repeated that, and then our text today 
came out of Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments were listed. It's a big, big part in the Bible and in the story of the Bible. And that's what I want to look at today is, first of all, to look to see where these ten fall. Now, most catechisms break down those ten and try to explain what each one of them do, and that's what we will do in the weeks coming. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism spends quite a bit of time on the commandments, the law of God, and what its place is in the story of God. And so we are going to be doing that. But today specifically, we will look at the context of the commandments. Where do they fall in the story? So we're going to look at that because that will have something to say about the purpose of the commandments. We will also look at where it falls, not just in the story Genesis, Exodus, where it is in 20, but just the Exodus itself and where it falls and how Jesus accomplishes the work of the commandments for us and how we can understand passages in the New Testament rooted in how we understand the giving of these Ten Commandments. So pretty big and broad, right? The giving of the Ten Commandments. So first, what is the context of the Ten Commandments? Where does it fall in the storyline? I once walked out after preaching a sermon, and uh, there was a couple here, and she said, you know, when you're talking about in the New Testament and you refer back to stories like Moses and Abraham and those people, I have no idea what you're talking about, and you completely lose me. And uh, so she didn't have any framework of the story of the Bible. So a lot of times I might expect you to know something and just refer back to a story when maybe some people don't. And so I will give a little bit of review because it's very important if you just come in and hear the commandments, like so is the Bible a book of rules that we should follow then? You might get that impression. And I don't want you to get that impression that the Bible is ultimately a rule book, but it is a story of God's redeeming love of those who can't keep the rules. That's more of the storyline that the Bible is putting the Ten Commandments in, so I want to bring them within context. So you'll uh, hopefully follow me here in kind of just a, a general look at the book of Exodus, a powerful book. You've come out of... 50 chapters of Genesis, right? And there's nothing really necessarily about Ten Commandments or laws. It's all about a relationship uh, that God's having and forming a people. God desires to have a people on the earth. So you have stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his descendants and a huge portion given to one of the sons of Jacob, Joseph. And at the close of that, Joseph is in Egypt and he brings his father Jacob and all their brothers and family, it says in Genesis 46, of about 66 people, and then it adds a few, two have died, two, and then it says 70 uh, uh, people. So the the family's pretty, that sounds pretty large to some of us, but it's not going to be near as large as it is as we get into Exodus. So Exodus begins the story with these descendants that have gathered in Egypt in Exodus 1-5. It mentions 70 persons this family that has gathered there. And in Exodus, it begins to tell the story of their bondage to slavery, uh, that a new Pharaoh rose, and he didn't know uh, Joseph, 
and all of that story that the other Pharaoh knew. All he knew is these people were multiplying along some of the most fertile uh, 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 ground in Egypt, and they were multiplying so much faster uh, that they uh, feared them taking them over. And so this Pharaoh arose and was very cruel and very wicked and very evil, and he wanted each of the male children of Israel to be killed upon birth. But Moses' mother can't do that, and she weaves a basket and puts her baby in that basket and sends um, her other daughter down there to watch to see what would happen. And Moses is drawn out of the water. That's what Moses means, drawn from the water. And he's taken out. He's raised as an Egyptian, uh, so he knows Egypt's ways, but his mother actually gets to nurse him, and so he learns the ways of his Hebrew family also. And Exodus comes out of this story in Exodus 12. We leap to there, and we find that as Moses is called back to lead the people out of Egypt and out of their bondage and out of their slavery, which they've been there for over 400 years, multiplying, growing into a huge, numerous family now. Uh, and even with this Pharaoh's attempt to kill the male children, they are still uh, growing and multiplying rapidly. And God hears their cries and says, now is the time to lead them out and sends Moses to lead them out. And in Exodus twelve thirteen it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This was during the final plague of letting the people go, the judgment upon the firstborn. And this is where the Passover comes. So if you've ever heard of the Passover, uh, this is actually what it means. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the Passover comes from, seeing the blood. This is important in the story of not just the Passover, but what will that mean, this Lamb of God that offers uh, the blood so that God's judgment will pass over us. Very important in the story. So if you look to John saying uh, in John one twenty nine, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. What does that mean to you if you don't understand the lamb? If you don't understand that God saw the blood in this Exodus story and passed over, might not mean anything to you. Behold the lamb, what's he talking about? What does a lamb have to do with anything? Well, when you know the story, you see the Bible as a story of interconnected parts all the way through to this time now that Jesus has actually come and John's saying, remember that Passover lamb? We've been celebrating all of these hundreds and hundreds of years. He's here. That Passover lamb, that blood that we shed way back in our family's heritage when we were led out of Egypt, this one has come to be the final. So it means a lot, right, in the story, in the context. And this is all, remember, before our text in Exodus 20 of giving the commandments. The lamb is already provided. The blood is is already provided. And in Exodus 13, if we just pick out a key verse in that chapter, we will see that as they're led out, the Lord 
leads them by day in a pillar of cloud. A pillar of cloud leads them by day in a pillar of fire at night that they may travel day and night. So they have this supernatural presence of God going with them. And that supernatural presence of God uh, doesn't lead them through uh, maybe a short way, but because they would encounter the Philistines, uh, leads them to the Red Sea. And it looks like a dead end. Why would God lead them to a dead end by this uh, pillar of, of cloud and pillar of fire? His presence, it does to lead them in a miraculous way by God's sovereign grace to open up and part the Red Sea. You love that story? The parting of the Red Sea, the, the east wind blowing hard and parting the sea and the Israelites crossing across on dry land and them getting to the other side and watching it collapse on Egypt and saying, you won't see those enemies anymore coming after you. And so it's a great deliverance. That's what salvation is. It's the deliverance of God from our captivity to our slave masters. And what does that story go on to say besides the power of the sea? What does Paul teach in 1 Corinthians 10? He mentions all these stories. Are they important? Well, he's teaching them in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, our fathers were all under the cloud. Remember that cloud that led them? I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to know about this cloud uh, that led them. And, by the, and, and, uh, and then he goes on and says, and through the sea. And then he explains this and expounds on it and says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud. And in the sea. So if he's teaching something to the Corinthians, a Greek Gentile church, about something that happened in the Exodus story about this cloud leading them and crossing the Red Sea and them being baptized into Moses, it's important in the story, right? It's important in the whole story. Like we can learn things from that story. And so the Bible is that. It is first and foremost this story. And what, what was the purpose of that? Uh, he begins to teach things to the Corinthians based and rooted in that. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, he begins to say that all these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. They happened as an example for our instruction today. That's not just the Corinthians, it's us too. For our instruction on whom the end of the ages has now come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Important, isn't it? That just didn't happen. It's like, okay, that's no, no longer relevant. It happened as examples, and it happened for our instruction today. And this is the story coming, leading up to the giving, this kind of culmination of God giving these commandments. But all these things are important in the story happening before the commandments are given. I love the song of Moses in Exodus 15. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Woo! Used to sing it and clap and jump around. Miriam playing her tambourine, singing, joining in. It was a great deliverance, and it produced song it produced joy it, it, it produced deliverance it was beautiful 
men, as they were in Exodus 16, they're led, and you know, some grumbling starts happening uh, right away, and what happens is they're hungry, and they remember the fertile valley of, of, of uh, Egypt and having all the food they wanted there. May have been slaves, but man, in, in a really good land where they had all the food they wanted. And what are they out here for, out to die in the desert? And Exodus 16, a verse I picked out in two, it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And, but then in Exodus 16, 4, it says, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, is that an important story about him raining bread from heaven? It is. Uh, how would you understand John chapter 6? where Jesus is teaching, and he actually teaches, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is writ written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. He's talking about this story in John 6, and ultimately Jesus tells them, when they say, sir, give us this bread always, in verse 35 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Yes. He gave them bread from heaven, and Jesus is saying, I am that bread from heaven. I was that bread in heaven then, and I am the bread from heaven now. And so that story is powerful, isn't it? It's ingrained in the New Testament stories. It's ingrained in the whole story of the Bible. What about the next chapter, Exodus 17, is the water from the rock, the water that flows from the rock. God specifically says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And in 1 Corinthians 10.4, it said, All drank from the spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's a, a mind-blowing revelation that, that Paul is, is telling us that that rock that provided water in the wilderness to uh, the people of Israel was Christ. He's pointing everything to Christ and the significance of the bread and the rock and all these things. And in Exodus 18, we learn that uh, Moses is confronted by his father-in-law, but he can't do it all alone in verse 18. And he says, moreover, in verse 21, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And we see Jesus doing that. We see Jesus himself calling together 12, intimately three, taking them certain places, taking 12 with him, but then sending out the 70, the 70 disciples out into the world to go out and accomplish that. God wants a people on the earth. He wants a people to accomplish his work. On the earth, and we begin to see that in Exodus 18, and then in 19, we see that this people is in 1960 says, "And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." Isn't that beautiful? I don't want just Moses leading. I want him to be leading with a people, a people that is a kingdom of priests. Like everyone has their priestly call to unite people to God, a holy nation for myself. This is something that God is doing. He wants a people unique uh, for himself on the earth. And that's all accomplished before our text today in Exodus 20. We have 69 chapters of a story. And if first and foremost, the Bible was just a law book, 
a code, a moral code that we were to follow, there would have been a lot more of that in the story up to this point. And it's not that the, the point of the commandments isn't powerful. It is. The law that was given in the Ten Commandments is powerful. It is uh, a, a miraculous event. The New Testament says things about the law and about the giving of the law that are profound. When Stephen is preaching his sermon in Acts and he's retelling this whole story in Acts 7, he's placing this giving of the commandments within the story. He starts off talking about Abraham and about God forming a people. This is Abraham's, uh, Stephen's uh, sermon in Acts chapter 7. And when he gets down to verse 38, he says, angels spoke to Moses at length on Mount Sinai, and he received living words, oracles from God to pass on to us. This is the Ten Commandments. When he went up, this is how Stephen proclaims what ha happened. Moses on that mountain went up. So it's glorious, isn't it? Oh, it, it was received with glory. It was, it was received through um, Galatians 3.19 says, why, why did the law come? These, these commandments come. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And this is saying a lot about the commandments when they came through Moses. There's never a discounting by Jesus of the commandments. There's only a further expounding on them. He did not come to abolish the law and the commandments, but to fulfill them. And what we're seeing in these texts leading up to the coming of the commandments is that Christ, the bread of life, the water of life, all these things are pointing to Jesus in the story. So the Ten Commandments are given, and we have listed them today and spoken of them. And the point is that the giving of the commandments doesn't come till after 69 chapters in the Bible, and that in the context of the story, the law, these Ten Commandments, were given in the context of redeeming grace. The law is given the Ten Commandments in the context of God's redeeming grace. You see, his story is about his redeeming grace, how he will redeem man. And it follows that Exodus 20 and the giving of the commandment falls after he has provided the blood of the Lamb. If you were to listen to uh, a Hebrew person about their deliverance, about their salvation, they would have said, we were delivered by the blood of the Lamb and we were baptized going across the Red Sea and we became a kingdom of priests and a holy nation unto God. Very similar to uh, what we would say today as being believers in Jesus, that we too were delivered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We too were baptized into his teaching and we too are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation unto God. As Peter says uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. So this is a powerful story and it's, it, it's pointing towards Christ and we need to understand it 
We need to understand it for the sake of understanding the rest of Scripture, where the law falls. But the, by understanding where it falls, we can also not be trapped by trying to please God by keeping the law. You see, because they had already pleased God through the blood of the Lamb and through being baptized into the crowd. Not everybody pleased God by doing that. Not all of the people were in that. God hadn't transformed all of their hearts. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, that's the warning. You can go through these things and you can go through these motions. You can come to church. I can take you and you can confess to me what you know. I can take and baptize you, but I don't know what's happened in your heart. Right? So some of the Israelites went across and were not pleasing to God in the end. So there's this juxtaposition that's happening with the law and the true followers of, of Jesus. But we see that an understanding of it will keep us from falling under the law. So in Galatians, it's teaching all of that. Believers had come to Christ, understood the blood of the Lamb, but Judaizers had come in and said, no, you still need to keep all of the laws to please God. And Paul comes in to confront that. So the book of Galatians is very much instructional on what we're talking about today, on where the law fell within the story. Very important. Stay with me. Galatians 3, Paul says, who has bewitched you? Who is leading you back under the law? We don't please God by the, the law. We please God only by faith in Jesus. And so remember where the law fell in Exodus 20? It fell underneath the context of redeeming grace. Redeeming grace was already there. And Paul's saying the same thing in Galatians 3. He's saying, what came first? And he goes all the way back to Genesis and Abraham. And he said, the promise came first. Important where the commandments fall. They don't fall till Exodus 20, right? And he's bringing that up. The context in the story, what came first? The promise to Abraham. That doesn't nullify another covenant that comes later. That promised covenant to Abraham still stands. And he even lists a time frame for it in Galatians 3. He says it came 430 years before the Exodus commandments came. You can see that with me, right? He's establishing where the commandments fell. And that you please God by faith. Not by the commandments that came way down here. You please God through the promise of redeeming grace. All of that happened first before the commandments come. You don't please God. No flesh will be justified by the keeping of the law, but only by receiving the grace of the promise in Jesus. It's a reliance and a dependence of faith on Jesus that saves you. And you Galatians came to it. Why would you subject yourself to go back trying to please God? by submitting yourself to rules and regulations and trying to make the Bible a moral code than a book of the story of the redeeming grace of God. So all of these are important. All of these stories are important. When, when Paul teaches in Romans 7 about the law, and then he gets to Romans 8 and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can you celebrate that there's no condemnation being in Jesus if you don't understand the condemnation that comes from trying to keep the law. He's saying, when I tried to keep the law, I was just constantly reminded by it that I couldn't keep it. Paul uses the commandment of coveting. 
He said, when the law said, do not covet, I coveted in every way. He knew that. The law brings that guilt. It brings that weight to when we get to Romans 8 and we say, there's therefore now no condemnation. Well, that is freedom in Christ. And it's knowing that weight of the law that leads us to the liberty in Christ. This is one of the great purposes of the law. So when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in in John chapter 8, and he's saying, talking to them about the truth setting them free, what do they say? We don't need to be free. We've never been enslaved. We're Abraham's kids. It's the Gentiles, you know, they're the ones that are slaves. Yeah, yeah, they're slaves. We're not slaves, see? And Jesus says, everyone who has sinned is a slave of sin. Everyone, everyone's, everyone's an addict. Everyone commits sin and they become a slave of sin. That's what Jesus is saying. But the Pharisees don't recognize that. They don't have the weight of the law upon them saying, I don't keep it. They have the weight of the law on them and they're saying, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm pretty justified before God. I'm keeping it better than most people. And it's not shining the light on them that Jesus is trying to shine the light on them. He says, no, you're an addict to sin. You're a slave to sin. You've broken one of these broken arms. You have a need to be set free. And the Pharisees are a lot like most of us in the world today, especially Americans. We don't have a need for God. We don't have a need for the Savior. We're, we're, we're pretty good. We're not such bad people. But the word and the law says something else about us. It says that this weight is upon us and that we can't please God through the keeping of the commandments. In the catechism book of the Heidelberg that I'm reading along with this new city catechism, Kevin DeYoung says this. He said, Christianity, he's talking all about the law and the weight of it, but it not being just a rule book. He says, Christianity is not a religion mainly about a moral code to keep. That's what some people make it. It's about these Ten Commandments and keeping them. It's about a moral code, and we got to keep it. But he says Christianity is about a God who saves people who don't keep the moral code. That's the announcement of redeeming grace. It's about his salvation for people. It has a lot of great ethical rules, and what it points out is we're not a great ethical people. We're a people who transgress the law. And the sooner we get that and the sooner we humble ourselves under the weight of the holy standards of God given in the Ten Commandments, the sooner we will be set free in Christ. That truth that we need a Savior comes to life. I mean, it bursts upon us when we get to Romans 8 and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I mean, that's like huge because for seven chapters, not just even the seventh chapter that's really talking about the law and the commandments and, and what they, they're good, they're holy, but we can't keep them. And that whole wrestling thing, I mean, all of it, the weight of the law, the weight of our failure, the weight of the wages of sin of all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. It's all falling upon us. We see that free gift of God in Christ. You see, there's no condemnation. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the lack of the weight of the Ten Commandments bearing on you and understand the grace that is in Christ and the freedom of 
the grace that comes in Jesus. C.S. Lewis kind of brought this out in Mere Christianity. He began to talk about one of the dangers of having a lot of money. But besides this, he also talked about the weight of just having a lot of natural good skills like a lot of the Pharisees had or like the rich young ruler had. You know, they had been raised right. They had right parents. They had right rules. And they had a pretty good will in keeping those rules. Not that they ever kept them perfectly, but pretty close, better than most people. And when you have all these advantages, it leads you to a point like the elder son and the prodigal son. Kind of his attitude. I'm not like that, beloved. You know that one that goes off and sins and spends the money and wastes and debauchery, sins are costly. I've always been here. But he had an ear for God. He lacked God. He wanted God's things and God's blessing, but he didn't want God. And he didn't have God. There's both a rebellious way of being away from God, and there's a self-righteous way from being away from God. And both of them don't know the gospel. Both of them don't know the redeeming grace in Jesus. And so C.S. Lewis says that that the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness that money can give you. Uh, you fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply to you, you basically sign checks. He says this, and this is a quote that a lot of us hear, and this, that's the context that this quote falls in. You may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. Have you ever forgot that? That every moment in your life, you're totally dependent on God because you are. But we forget that, don't we? We thought, well, I'm dependent on this. I got the money and I can write these checks. I can, I can do this and I can do that. And that same thing happens, C.S. Lewis says, with our natural gifts. Uh, some, some of us have good, a good mind. Some of us have some good intelligence, some pretty good health. Uh, maybe some good social skills and popularity and have had a good upbringing. And we can be quite satisfied with that, C.S. Lewis says. Why drag God into it? I'm doing pretty good. It's, this was said by C.S. Lewis uh, <laughs> a while back, but it's what we're saying today in our culture. Let's be good without God. Why drag God into it? We're being good. And, and he goes on to say, you're quite likely to believe uh, that all the people who have these natural kinds of goodness cannot be brought to recognize their need for Christ at all until one day the natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shat shattered. In other words, it is hard for those who are rich in this sense to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard, but when we stand up to the shining light of the Ten Commandments, and we look at him, and Jesus shines his lights on the Sermon on the Mount, what was he talking about with the law of God? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about, you, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but if you say to your brother, you fool, you've murdered. What did he say about adultery? What did he say about all of the, the laws and the commandments there? He's talking about these ten in a very practical way, and he's shining the light and saying, you can't keep them. You need a Savior. We need, as C.S. Lewis said, if we have our own resources, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. 
take communion together. And in communion, we're remembering his death until he comes. We're remembering the cross. We're remembering the Lamb of God offering up his perfect life in our place of our transgression to the law life, ours. Him dying for us. This is what we remember. This is what we proclaim in communion. An announcement and a remembrance of his death until he returns. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks for it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Let us consume the lamb. Let us take him with him. children of Israel that manna and that that bread that you sent from heaven was Christ we thank you that the Passover celebrates this and that when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant he said I'm the bread take this bread this bread is my body given for you I'm the bread of life we thank you that he rained down from heaven, Jesus. And we thank you for his body broken for us that we might be healed. We praise you in Jesus' name. In the same manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. There was a lamb, an innocent lamb that shed his blood for the Passover. But there is the lamb of God who shed his blood for the forgiveness and remission of sins. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. Your Egypt, your slavery to Egypt is your slavery to sin, and my blood alone delivers you from your captivity and your slavery to sin. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. much for the body and the blood of Jesus. Let us sing and rejoice.